So here is something a little bit different. An interview with Will Self in Blackwell's, the bookshop in Oxford, the lovely bookshop in Oxford. You must go. You must go and buy a book. You must go and buy Will's book, Why Read, a set of essays. I interviewed Will a few months ago and we had a fine time. I hope you enjoy it. What we're going to be discussing tonight really is how we read and why we read, as particularly in the age of digital distraction. I don't know about you, but I'm in a constant battle with my phone. I shout at my phone, I, I chuck my phone on the floor. Yesterday I nearly threw it in the river. Fortunately, I live on a narrowboat and it's very difficult to live on a narrowboat without having some uh, telephone communication, which is to say a modem, and my phone is my modem. So anyway, I'm in this elaborate relationship, love-hate relationship with technology. I'm doing my best to downsize and go backwards and regress. I'm doing my absolute best. You have to help me with this, guys. I'm really trying to go backwards, but it's very difficult to go backwards with technology. It's almost impossible. So um, Will tells me in his marvellous collection of essays, which I am going to make my students read, by the way. Um, you know, it really is a manifesto for reading. Unlike me, Will does use digital devices, and which I was surprised to read about, actually. Um, he, he reads on his phone and on Kindles. Have I got that right? Mm. No, no I, I do. I do. And I, I, and I think you make a good point. It's very hard to go backwards. Mm -hmm. I think the looming environmental crisis should have drawn humans' attention to the fact that their adoption of technology is not an unmitigatedly good thing. Mm. Uh, but there's a great problem with accepting that, obviously, and, and everybody has their reason. It's like a, at a kind of microcosmic level, your battle is kind of humanity's battle in a way. You're kind of, there you are on your longboat, kind of acting it out. In, uh, and I think, you know, particularly the kind of ide ideology that we, we live in of kind of liberal progressivism, which typifies the literary culture of the Anglosphere, uh, technological advance or the idea of technological <coughs> advance, it, it's, it's like the kind of mysterious uncle who arrives in, you know, E.H. Nesbitt stories and delivers fantastic presents that everybody... <laughs> unwraps in that way and I think it's it very difficult mm. how do you get somebody to read mm. digitally and read on an analog you know on print and how do you actually compare that mm. experience I mean unless it's in the real world and then it becomes endlessly diverse but the evidence seems to be and I would bear this out that you retain less if you read digitally yeah. than if you read on the page I mean it it's as simple that the, the physical heft of the book, you know, yeah. your, your the geography whole, of the book, we need yeah, it. It has yeah. a geography, you know, and you sort of, yeah. one of the things you remember about what you've written is what, what kind of side of the page mm. it is yeah. and kind of roughly where it is mm. through the physical. And, and I think you do lose that. Mm. Everything digital mm. sort of mm. slides a bit, mm. it has no, no kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't arrest your, your eye or your thought in, in quite the same way. However, on the plus side, for a lot of us pe older people who read and love to read, the moment when you realised that you could read anything out of copyright mm -hmm. in instance was an extraordinary moment. I mean, 
perhaps our libido isn't quite what it used to be but it but you know when i was young and you're a bit younger than me but i think you know people in their 60s say when we were young music was in short supply you actually kind of stood in the playground with the with the tranny pressed and and this meant a transistor radio by the way <laughs> pressed against your ear desperately kind of listening to these songs that you wouldn't necessarily hear again until they went round in the playlist and uh, or you could afford to buy them and there was an analogous situation not quite as drastic with uh, with books and literature you had li to a certain extent limited access so well can i just um take us back as i'm a fan of going backwards um to your adolescence, because there's a couple of moments I wanted us to discuss perhaps a little bit more personal, your personal relationship to reading, how you, how you first came across books. Um, and and you're, you have this wonderful phrase, you speak of yourself as a promiscuous reader. Um, using your mother's books, there was this kind of, these two genealogies, your father's more scholarly, more proper, more canonical books. Your father was a, um, he taught at London University. He was a civic planner, urban planner. Uh, scholar of the city and civic space, and we might come on to that a bit later because I'm interested in how space and architecture also informs the way you think about reading. But your father, the scholar, and then your mother, you say, had these kind of psychological books, pop psychology, and she had this very sensual relationship to reading, you say, almost like a kind of reading witch that she was casting spells upon, upon herself and you. And this one wonderful moment in your essay, I loved it, how, we, how one should read or how we should read, your mother used to write words on the sofa, is that right? She used to spell them out. Um, can you say a bit more about well, that? She taught me to read before I went to school. I mean, being American, of course, she knew all about phonics about mm. 35 years before they pitched up in Britain. And she taught me to read perfectly well by the time I was four. Mm. It wasn't actually that hard to do. But one of the, she, she used flashcards, mm. uh, obviously, and she also used the sort of the back of this kind of velvet, or ve probably velveteen covered mm -hmm. sofa we had, where if you ran your finger one mm -hmm. way, the, it left, you know, so it was like a natural mm -hmm. blackboard in that way, but, but so much more kind of sensuous because mm -hmm. of the material, because of the domestic context. Uh, and I remember that very much, mm -hmm. her writing words, I think I remember it, in a kind of Nabokovian way. I probably burnished the memory. Um, and then there were these regular library trips, which were quite religious. Yeah. Religious library yeah. trips. You'd have your library card, go to the East Finchley Library, yeah. which had a kind of, you, you went in and there was a kind of Oculus mm. room just before you went into the main body of the library. And it had that kind of ineffable odour of libraries of the period of, of kind of um, wax polish. Mm. Uh, and, and sort of paper, really, mm. of a certain kind, which I think is gone now. I mean, I think libraries, frankly, are now a crock of shit. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and because they went belly up to digital, because yeah. there's no point in having it. You know, it, it's a bit like the London cabbies who have sat nav mm. in the black cabs, but they've spent three years doing the <laughs> knowledge. You know, it's like, why on earth would you let the, the computers into the library? It's not. It's actually to do with the ghastly, you know, austerity and neoliberalism. It's because they basically folded the Citizens Advice Bureau into the library and kind of, or, and kind of respite care for homeless people. And um, but yeah, I remember that. I remember, you know, you get your six books out a week, 
six books a week, never enough. Exactly. Never, never enough, enough six books a week. And then we had what we would call reading supper. Now this I wanted to come on to. What the <laughs> hell is a reading supper? We did not have these where I come from, Will. Not in LA, okay? <laughs> what is a reading supper? A reading supper. <laughs> For God's sake. A reading supper is a supper at which you're allowed to read. In other words, you don't have to... To talk to people. You don't have to convert okay. at all. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds good. It's agreed in advance. You know, tonight, shall we have a reading supper <laughs> or an ordinary supper? And I guess it's the sort of middle-class, right. bien-pensant equivalent of a telly supper. Mm -hmm. And really, it should have its own special tray <laughs> of some kind of compartmentalised tray. But it didn't. Right. It was just a thing. It was. It felt, though, you know, I'm sure my, my brothers would deny this, like mm. it was just me and her. It was a very kind of... So it was a measure of intimacy. Yeah, no, which it is. I mean, mm. being quiet with someone, being silent with someone. I see older couples on holidays, you know, Airbnbs, and they do that. And actually, I think they love each other. I, mm. For me, that is a sign of love, that you can read well. with someone else. And I have sort of emotional pangs about that and think, okay, would be worth it for that. Would be worth <laughs> all the rest. Nothing to do with the sex or the security, it's the reading. Well, quiet reading <laughs> with someone else. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, okay, so tiny bit more biography of reading, because I think we need to we need to hear about this. I also really like, like the essay on uh, the shelf and the shelf life. You speak about the structure of shelves, again, the geography of shelves, the planning of shelves, you know, the lines. Your imagination is very driven by lines, like it would seem to me. Your mm. father's um, map brain. Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm projecting mm. here because my mother was also a cartographer. But I loved this um, this image of Alice that you attached to. Can I just read this tiny bit yeah, so no they know what we're talking about? So um, this is Will describing the bedroom that he had, um, which I think he inherited. Is that right from your half brother? Yeah, I mean it'd been a kind of lumber room for the family. My half brother was never really there. He was either away at school, he was sent away to school, and as soon as he left school, he went back to America, where mm. from whence he'd come originally, and developed a, 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 an overpowering hatred for England. That <laughs> sustains him to this day. He, he would have died years ago were it not that he gets up in the morning <laughs> hating England. <laughs> well, that's another renewable source yeah. of energy right there, isn't it? Hate. So, um, so I just want to read this little bit because I found it really um, very moving. This inheritance of a space and of your shelves. And then it turned into your father's study, if I got it that right? It had been a bit my father's study yeah. and, a bit, and then my room. And then your room, the, uh, okay. So it was all jumbled up. Yeah. It had ended up as a repository of books and all sorts of other impedimenta spread over a series of mismatched shelving units. And I love this idea of mismatched shelving units. I live on a narrowboat and my shelves are entirely mismatched. A lot of sliding this way and that way of books. I spent my time between the ages of 8 and 17 either staring at these shelves or rearranging them, interspersing books with things and things with books. When I was little, I set up complicated string pulley systems linking one shelf with another, so my toys could zip wire from Herbert Marcuse's one-dimensional man to John Updike's couples. <laughs> now, of course, we've all done this, haven't we, in our childhood, zip wiring our books. I also lay on my bed and read and reread Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Now, this is when my heart begins to melt, particularly taken by her long, safe fall down the shelf-lined well. First, she tried to look down and make out what she was coming to, but it was too dark to see anything. Then she looked at the sides of the well and noticed that they were filled with cupboards and bookshelves. 
Here and there, she saw maps and pictures hung upon pegs. She took down a jar from one of the shelves as she passed. It was labelled Orange Marmalade. But to her great disappointment, it was empty. She did not like to drop the jar for fear of killing somebody, so managed to put it into one of the cupboards as she fell past it. Mm. How old were you then? About eight? I don't really know. I mean, we had actually, before I could even read, I remember we had a uh, 45 RPM single of an adaptation of Alice mm. that I think featured um, Peter Ustinov, but it may be a conflation with his Peter and the Wolf, which was quite oh, celebrated in the 60s. Uh, but, but the Mad Hatter's Tea Party made a huge impression on me, even when I was pre-literate. I've always been a huge fan of Alice. Mm. I mean, I've written on it consistently mm. throughout my career. I mean, I think even <coughs> just listening to you read that excerpt, what, what struck me was why, why, you know, we were talking about it just before, and you were saying, I think you wrote to me in an email a day or a day or two ago saying how, how kind of minatory the fall was, how kind of threatening and worrying. To me, it's, it's lovely, the fall down the well. It's, for a start, it's the transition from the dull afternoon to Wonderland itself. And secondly, and, and hearing you read it, Sally, again then, I sort of thought, it's the, it's the rejection of the kind of stasis horrors of childhood. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you're a bookish child or an imaginative child or if your parents are good parents or your parents are neglectful parents or your parents are even abusive parents. You, boredom is an intrinsic feature of childhood. Mm. You know, somebody that, you know, there are some kind of psychoanalytic thinkers like Adam Phillips who say, you know, boredom is an aspect of creativity. You know, you, you need it to be... I find boring fucking boring. <laughs> and, and, and I have to, really, ineffably dull. And, 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 and one of the only, probably the only great thing about getting older, you, you don't get bored. It's over. Boredom is over. It just doesn't exist anymore. And you look for it. You sometimes look for boredom. You seek it out. Because you remember the magnificent character of Dunbar in Hellas Catch 22 a young man trying to avoid being killed in the Second World War in this kind of punitive and ridiculous air bombing campaign. Mm. Uh, and Dunbar cultivates boredom mm. because he realises that every hour he's bored is an eternity compared to the ones when he's engaged. So he thinks he can escape death through boredom. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that, that Alice's fall is the antithesis of all of those rainy Tuesday afternoons mm. when you sat there and thought kind of, you know, you couldn't even conceive of it. You sort of thought to yourself, I wish we could just all end now, really. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of what, what Carol has done magnificently, mm. and if you think of the kind of motif of boredom in Alice, because it's all about yes. this kind of dichotomous relationship mm. with boredom. And, mm. and maybe, maybe the psychoanalysts are right. It mm. is the springboard mm. into this extraordinary fecundity. Mm. But we're, we're, I mean, we're rushing in to save our children from boredom all the time. I and mean, that's part of the problem, isn't it, with becoming a semi-illiterate culture, is that we are not allowing our children to be bored. We're constantly entertaining them and structuring their time endlessly. So, But, Will, if you will um, permit, can we just talk a, f a little bit about some of the writers that influenced your, your career as a writer, those that have settled into your heart and mind? Um, you use the word palimpsest a great deal to speak about your understanding of history. Um, 
and also the way in which you read. You know, there's this idea of there being layer upon layer upon layer of text that we're trying to get at. And one of the essays that I read over and over again, I think it's probably, I, to my mind, it's the finest essay here. It's the Kafka's Wound essay, mm. written for the LRB. Mm. Um, it's, I think it's a difficult essay. It's not, it's, it's not easy to read at, at points, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, mm. that, that makes it, um, there are so many ridges to it. There's so many ridges. But what I kept returning to was this confession of yours at the beginning. I am guilty of an association of ideas, or rather, I am guilty, that's a given. And in casting about for the source of my guilt, I find I cannot prevent myself from linking one idea with another, purely on the basis of their contiguity in time, in place, in my own mind. So I, I heard that, and um, I am a terrible associative thinker. Um, it's, it's when I get overexcited, it's all I can do, and it becomes almost manic, actually. But I think there's a way in which as readers, and we're both of us, you know, we've done a lot of reading, um, whether we've done it well or not is, is, is another matter, but we, as writers, we have to behave like this, don't we? Don't we have to be constantly doing this business of associating one thing with another? Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, really that riff then takes us via, you know, Hume's <laughs> observation mm. that, uh, about the nature of imagination. Mm. You know, Hume says there's nothing yeah. that unusual about the idea of a mountain and mm. there's nothing particularly surprising about the notion of gold but if you put them together you get a gold mountain mm. uh, and, and then now you're smoking you know <laughs> so but I think he makes the point that imagination is essentially combinatorial mm. in that way and and the essay I suppose I mean it, going back to Milan Kundera's mm. sort of characterization of Kafkaology and of the kind of uh, you know, the particular way in which, as a writer, Kafka, and as a human being, partly due to the posthumous influence of Max Brod and his Bowdlerizations and so forth, but also, I think, because we needed somebody like Kafka, uh, you know, not only became this kind of secular saint or kind of Jewish saint to some extent, but also became this writer that was ineffable, mm -hmm. godlike in his ineffability. No possible theoretical reticulation could contain him. He would just slide through it in this way. And, and really what I'm trying to say in the essay is, and I'm using Kafka as, as a sort of stick really to, to beat the critical theorists of, of the last 30, 40, 50, You have a real go years. at them. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I think I'd say at the end of the essay, yeah. you know, each new doctoral student mm -hmm. kind of zips himself on to the mm -hmm. kind of jump wire mm -hmm. uh, of, of the Dolce and Gabbana of critical theory, Deleuze and Guattari, and mm -hmm. then jumps into free space, mm -hmm. hoping that, that he or she will gain tenure mm -hmm. on the way down. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a particularly, and, and the point about this is that it's a, it's an objection towards that association sure. of ideas. It's not understanding you know, what human beings are really like psychologically, and particularly denying the fact of, you know, that Kafka wrote in a particular place and time. Uh, and he was writing this story that I analyze in the essay, The Country Doctor, during the First World War, and during a series of particularly vicious battles on the Eastern Front that he knew people had been involved in. They'd actually been coming back from the front wounded you know so I think for kind of 
literary critics to divorce the text completely from its context is to deny something very fundamental, which is not to say that hermeneutics don't have their place. But again, I think that the kind of obsession with literary hermeneutics and literary criticism in the academy or the way that it's become, what it's become in the academy is another of these signposts that we're in kind of deep trouble with what we think of as our literate culture. I mean, what a paradox it is that we've developed these, you know, and, and here we are in the absolute omphalos, uh, <laughs> the navel of this tendency. Uh, we've developed this extraordinary apparatus for critiquing literature as if it exist, existed outside of our own societies, uh, when in fact it's in a critical position and, uh, uh, and under threat in this way. So that's what that's really yes. about. Could you say a bit more about what Kafka gave you as a writer, though? Because you write very interestingly in that essay and, and in the essay on Siebold, the German writer, about translation mm. and, the, and, and trying to get close to the original language, not knowing the original language, which, of course, is German. And we've, we've spoken about this um, ourselves outside of this conversation. We've spoken about Conrad in this regard and the way in which great writers who've been translated or great writers like Conrad who know three or four other languages coming from Polish through French and Russian. I'm not sure which way round it went, which, but obviously, you know, not, not writing, not knowing English as his native tongue. There's this strange production of a certain kind of English that isn't English. And then, which I, in Siebold, I've been reading Siebold a lot recently in preparation for talking to Will, and there's, I can't find the visceral life in it. And I think I wrote that to you. I can't find the knee joints and the elbows and the awkwardness that comes out of... Well, he's not very sexy. Not Zabel. sexy. No, he's not There's sexy. There's no sex. I mean, in, in Rings of Satin, he sees a couple sort of making love on the beach, the, the, the unnamed narrator, and he's kind of repulsed by it. Mm. But it's almost the only sexual <laughs> image in the entire oeuvre. Clearly, he was not a happy camper when it mm. came, <laughs> came to his... And exactly as you put it, Sally, you know, you can't have a happy sex life until you ex can accept the odd elbow. <laughs> you know, the, the, the paradox mm. of, of making well love well mm. is accepting the messy contingency of the sexual existence mm. in that way. And I think that troubled Zabel mm. very deeply. Mm. I think it troubled Kafka as well, mm. I have to say. I think it was a problem. Uh, but, you know... I discovered Kafka long before the issue of translation bothered me. I mean, I, I read Milan Kundra's essay on Kafkaology, I would say, probably in my early 30s. And, mm -hmm. and in a way, I hadn't, because I'd loved Kafka so much, and I'd read, read the um, Edwin and Willa Muir translations, which are the first translations of Kafka, and they're the ones that, mm -hmm. that, that, um, that Kundera takes particular aim at. He says that... You know, they eradicate the specificity mm. of Kafka's mm. German, which is very particular. Mm. You know, it's, it's a German spoken by uh, a, a Jewish German-speaking mm. community of, of 50,000 mm. who, who are islanded within a Prague, uh, mostly populated mm. by Czech-speaking Czech minority, who in turn are islanded in a uh, Sudeten-German, mm. Bohemian-German uh, territory where the predominant language is German, but a different kind of German to the German spoken by, mm. by Kafka's Jewish community. So, you know, I, I wasn't aware of any of this when I read Kafka. I remember vividly, as almost as vividly as I, <laughs> I remember my mother uh, drawing letters on the back of the sofa, 
mm. reading metamorphosis mm. for mm. the first time and reading the sentence, uh, you know, one morning, uh, Gregor Samsa awoke from troubled dreams to discover that during the night he had turned into a monstrous vermin. Mm. Vermin note in yes. German. Ungefeitzer, not cockroach, yes. not bug. Not any of that. Mm. And actually, in my translation, in, in, the, in the, the Muir's translation, it would have read bug or mm. cockroach. And I thought to myself, I was 14, I was babysitting uh, in the Hampstead Guard suburb for a, a family. And the child was, I mean, God knows why they were leaving this 14-year-old boy with their <laughs> four-year-old child who used to have hysterical fits every time the parents left him with me. And it was all, I don't know how I managed to get him to bed. I probably sort of subdued him in some hideous way. But there I was sitting on their sofa reading yeah. it. And I thought, okay, that's it. That's it. That's what was it? Well, what was it? I understood intuitively what fiction is about. Mm -hmm. and, and fiction is it's totally about leisure demand. Either mm -hmm. you, if you don't persuade your reader, you know, basically I say to you, this guy wakes up and he's, he's a bug in the morning. Either you buy it, mm -hmm. in which case you're along for the ride, <laughs> or else you reject it. Okay, mm -hmm. you don't need a lot of sort of overweight middle-aged men mm -hmm. in in kind of puffer jackets with light meters around <laughs> their neck and kind of accountants with clipboards and mm -hmm. the whole mishigas of making a movie or making a television production. All you need is to write that one line, mm -hmm. and either somebody's going to go with you, or they're not. Mm -hmm. But it's cut and dried at that point, and I think I understood that fundamentally, and and that's why Kafka was. Mm -hmm so important to me because he showed the possibility, the purity of that, you know, and, and in a way, when you think about it, all of his oeuvre is the same thing. Again and again, you know, I was just writing another essay on Kafka the other day, and I was saying, you know, that sort of echoing the final line of, of the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, you know, for Kafka, the world is everything that's the case. That's all, you know. It doesn't matter about, you know, and, and where he stands in the history of 20th century literature in relation to the kind of linguistic turn of the early 20th century is that he resists the dubiety of postmodernism by this extraordinary eclat, by just saying, no, he's woken up and he's a bug. And of course, the fact of the matter is, he isn't a bug. <laughs> you know, it was always said that Kafka always said he didn't want it illustrated, but if there was going to be a picture on the cover of Metamorphosis, it would be a young man in a cafard, you know, a depressed young man. Mm -hmm. so. And you talk um, a great deal about um, texts that haunt you in, in, in a, in a, within the Kafka oeuvre, and there are two other shorter stories that, um, you, that recur and recur, and which also seem to recur in the Zeebold as well, and one of which, um, so there's a kind of inheritance there. You, you're both as writers haunted by similar Kafkaesque texts. And one of them is this extraordinary story, this mythopoetic story, Gracchus the Hunter. Mm. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yes? I mean, I don't think there's any yeah. rule okay. on, on okay. how you have to say it. Um, and, it's, and it's a story of a, a, a hunter who carries on in the land of the living, although he's dead. So there's this kind of paradox, isn't there? He's a man who's dead, but who's still seen by those who are living. And I, is it a way of trying to explain what the Germans call das Unheimlich, the uncanny, the ghosts that we live with? And I just wanted to 
I don't know, you may not know why this is, but what, what, why does that text follow you about? Because it was there in your conversation with Carol uh, Angier on the other, the other day, and you just sort of were, I felt as though you were talking to yourself about it, and I wanted to hear more mm. um, about that, that palimpsest. You know, what mm. is it about that story? And it's a very, it's, when I read it, it sounded to me like a, a story from the Hindu tradition. You know, it, mm. it, it could be Indian, yes. and it could be yes, Bhagavad uh, Gita, you know, territory. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, mm. Well, I came to it quite late, the actual Hunter Gracchus. I mean, I hadn't particularly noted it before. He falls, he's a hunter, he falls into a ravine when he's out hunting. And, and it's ambiguous as to whether he's died or not. Yes. I, I think the key point is that, that if he has died, no one knows he's yes. died. Yes. That's, that's his problem. No one recognizes him as a dead man. No, right? not yes. exactly. Mm. And, and when he arrives, I mean, the, the story, it, again, like a lot of Kafka, the story just has this extraordinary eclat, mm. this kind of declarative mm. power to it. Yes. You know, it's sort of, he arrives on, uh, on, on the shores of Lake Garda mm. uh, in a boat in northern Italy and is, is kind of taken to meet the mayor and, and, and explains his predicament, that he's condemned to wander the world. Mm. He's the Flying Dutchman, he's the Wandering Jew, he's anybody who's, who's ended up trapped in this kind of liminal space. And the, the whole story for me, or the whole, it's not even a story, I mean, Kafka did two versions of it. In a way, often the shorter and more fragmentary mm -hmm. is the better. Uh, but it all leads up to this kind of strange climacteric where he says, he explains his awful condition, he says, I am always on this broad staircase. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, moving yes. always to one side, to the other mm. side, up, down. Mm. I used to be a hunter, mm. now I'm a butterfly. Mm. You know, and, and, and I think that the, 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 for me, the huge power of this image is the disjunction, of course, between what we think of as our episodic selves and our, what we might call diachronic selves. The idea that we persist in time and yet, quite clearly, we can't be the same person. You're not that little boy who grazed his knee in the playground, mm -hmm. you know, looking at you maybe 30, 35 years ago. You can't be, right? Mm -hmm. you, that little boy had never had any sexual experience. He wasn't involved in that fight. He didn't do the thing mm -hmm. in the bar. <laughs> that <laughs> <they didn't. laughs> yeah? He hasn't had the career, you know. And, and yet, you, you, you desperately want to claim him as being you. You need mm -hmm. that continuity yes. of persona at the same time as record. And I think that that's what Kafka nails with that image. And it, you think about, you know, it's actually coincidentally, because I, I sort of teach, and I'm taking some students to the Freud Museum tomorrow, mm -hmm. and I was reading Freud's essay on the uncanny mm -hmm. on the train. And, and you sort of... You, you want the uncanny to be in the world, mm. but it's not, yes. it's in you. Mm. It's uncanny, you know, I've got one of my sons is very, very he, he rebels against the, the sort of mystagogic aspect of the family. And we were sort of saying to him, a couple of his siblings and me were sort of saying to him the other day, but, but what's happened, Alexis, to yesterday? Because mm. like it really doesn't exist anymore, and along with it, you. And he was going, sharp, sharp, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> so I think that that's what that mm. ma magnificent mm. image and the story brings mm. to us in that mm. way. And I, I think there are a few writers that 
that grasps it. I mean, a, a lot of writers are awfully prosaic. Have you noticed? Mm. I Ian have McEwen, noticed. for example. <laughs> <laughs>